Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Meantime, on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, uh, the longtime voice of the Houston Texans. I did not realize this until I logged on to the official Texans website, but Mark Vandermeer is also vice president of broadcasting. Mark joins us now. That's awesome. I need a I need a title like that. <laughs> What's up, John? Yeah, uh, that that means a lot of different things. Does that mean a lot more work? Does that mean a lot more work you have to do? Is that what that means? It kind of does. But the voice of the Texans thing is far more interesting at cocktail parties to people. You know, it's it's always a great job to have for those reasons, if nothing else. But it really is a joy and a pleasure to do it. See, if we had our website would say like the vice president of dumbassery is what I would have before me and then afternoon host. So I don't know if I'd bring that one out at cocktail parties anyway. So, yeah, yours, yours well, is you much be better. Senior vice president someday, maybe. So, <laughs> maybe you know, so. Room to grow. <laughs> maybe so. Hey, Mark, I want to start right here. We were trying to come up with yesterday and then for the first segment here, some relatables, connectables between that, that first meeting of the season way back in, in September and the win by the Colts to where we are in this kind of winner-take-all scenario on Saturday night. Anything for you come to mind? Well, look, that was a weird game. You know, Anthony Richardson erupted early at two touchdown runs. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what have we gotten ourselves into here? And the Texans really hadn't figured themselves out yet. You know, who are they? How good is C.J. Stroud? We don't really know. And then Minshew comes into the game, and I thought, all right, this is good. It's Gardner Minshew. We've had some success against him with the Houston Texans. But, no, sir, he looks really sharp. And the Colts just took it to the Texans that day. But we saw some seedlings in the second half of what – C.J. Stroud could be in the very next week. They blew out Jacksonville on the road, and he was off and running. So I think that Stroud being able to really establish himself, at least the rookie context of him throughout the course of the season, is a huge development for the Texans. They know better who they are on defense. They've gotten good against the run. They're still somewhat vulnerable to explosive pass plays, but they're working on it. Uh, They've got injuries. Everybody's got injuries. But I think the Texans have changed a lot, but I think the Colts have really established something good for themselves, too, obviously. It's a mark Vandermeer, the longtime voice of the Texans, he joins us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Saturday night is going to be electric here at Lucas Oil Stadium with these two teams, and a winner goes to the postseason, and the loser stays home. Uh, The return event for C.J. Stroud this past weekend, how was he compared to how he was prior to missing those couple of weeks in protocol? Oh, he was great because the Titans were taking away everything deep. He worked the check down. He just kept it fairly simple relative to what he's done earlier. Uh, he didn't throw for over 300, but he was solid, didn't turn the ball over, took one sack, and the Texans ran the ball well enough, and they played outstanding defense on Derrick Henry. I mean, two games against Derrick Henry, he doesn't hit 50 yards total between them, and that's that's a real headline for this organization because the previous five matchups prior to this season, he had gone for over a thousand yards total in five games 
against the Texans. So that was big to be able to keep him in check. And it all started with that. And I think they fed off of that defensive effort to get two wins over the Titans and put them in the position they're in today. Yeah. Overall this season, though, compared to what you expected when he was drafted to what you have seen during his rookie season, how have your thoughts been related compared to what you thought you were going to see to what you have seen, what he what he has represented at that position this year in Houston? Oh, he's far surpassed it. I mean, I thought he could be pretty good, but I thought I thought success for him as a rookie would be predicated on them running the ball really well and having him not have to do so much, right? They had Damian Pierce last year run very successfully, but then he got hurt toward the end of the year. Uh, this year, Pierce has had a, a bit of a struggle matching that, a lot of a struggle, a, a lot. He's been really not what he was in 2022. So Devin Singletary's performed well on the ground. But again, the ground game is not where they want it to be for this 49er-type offense. Stroud's been incredible. I mean, he's been throwing routinely for 300-plus touchdowns here, there, everywhere, explosive plays, uh, being able to maneuver outside the pocket and find open people downfield. It has been wonderful to see. I did not expect it to be this good this early. I don't know if I expected this at all. I just expected him to be pretty solid. Who knows with rookie quarterbacks, right, John? Yeah. You draft them. Them, and you just hope they get better from where they were in college. I don't care who they are. Look at Caleb Williams right now, Michael Penix. These guys are all going to have to improve. You can't stay the same way. And Stroud has certainly gotten better. You know what's funny about that is I made my evaluation off of one game, and that was his performance against Georgia. And I said, if anybody does not believe that this guy doing that offensively, even in a loss, but that offensively to that team and that defense at the time, you're kidding yourself. So really to me he's been better than what i thought but i thought he was going to be really good anyway going in well i saw him early on in otas and look we had deshaun watson here too and it was a similar kind of thing where early on it was is it there but then he improves quickly within a matter of weeks and then early in training camp all right what are we seeing now now that they're really out there in pads and so forth and then in a few weeks both guys got better uh they're different players you know it was a thrill to watch watson his rookie year but he's a very different kind of player cj can manage things in the pocket and just outside of it doesn't have to run uh he'd prefer not to he just wants to sling it he can throw it at the tight windows the anticipation is amazing i mean the ball is gone before a guy makes his break he'll go up to receivers and say hey run it three yards shorter okay because i think they're onto this one he'll say stuff like that who sees that this guy's amazing he's only 22 years old and the sky's the limit moving forward he had me at ball placement specialist here in indy during the combine too by the way too so we combine yeah, that's, that talent that's a big deal so yeah and and, and release too we right. had uh dan pastorini on the air last week and you know he doesn't pass out the praise that easily and he said cj has the best release he's ever seen i mean that was incredible to hear him say that <laughs> yeah. even if that's not true just to put him in that conversation is amazing and it's not like warren moon dan marino type velocity here it is it's coming out smooth catchable accurate again tight windows anticipation it's all there right now and look it's not perfect perfect but it looks pretty good to me and again as a rookie you hope he gets better from here and if he does watch out mark vandermeer he's the uh, longtime voice i should say of the texans on the andy moore automotive group hotline so the first time out there was an incredible amount of injuries going on especially to that offensive line how is it 
how has it looked to this point, and especially going into Saturday, and some of your injury concerns you have about this matchup Saturday night? I mean, there it feels like 50 offensive linemen have played for this team this year. It's just one after another and a lot of switching and back and forth. You had George Fant, who they acquired just as camp began, playing a lot of right tackle. Uh, and then they moved him over to left this past game when Laramie had to leave. I don't know Laramie's status for Saturday. I think they're just going to keep that under wraps. We'll see how it goes. Look, they were all out there today dressed, and I hope they could all play. I think this time of year, you know this, they're out there. It's not going to be a lot of hard hitting in practice necessarily. That's yeah. just my thought anyway. They just want to make sure they're as mentally sharp and as physically ready as possible for the game. But, yeah, they've got injuries up and down. I mean, losing Jimmy Ward at safety I think was a huge thing for this team but then the last game they got Blake Cashman back who's their leading tackler really good linebacker play this year uh Jonathan Grenard did not play Will Anderson comes in for limited snaps and has two sacks it's just been that kind of season everybody's got to suck it up and I think all teams kind of feel that way it's weird around here this has just been an up and down Colts team but you combine that with the way things have gone for everybody else for example within the division and then the fact the schedule and I've always said this, Mark, and I'm sure you would agree, you just take advantage of those games that are on your schedule. And for the most part, going into this win and your end situation, that's what the Colts have done this year. Yeah, and I look at the Colts and say, look, it wasn't that long ago that this team was projected to do some very big things. And I know some of the names have changed. I'm looking at the, the O-line, and I feel like it's the Eagles reunion tour. You know, you don't have Glenn Fry anymore, but Vince Gill's filling in nicely, and you still have Don Henley and Timothy B. Schmidt and that kind of thing. <laughs> Did I take the analogy too I love, No, that's but, okay. People get it. We're big. We are musically informed on this show, Mark. No problem. Okay, well, yeah. I liken it to that. Yeah, but enough of those guys to play the music and make things happen with the O-line. And then you look at some of the defensive players, and I know Shaq Leonard is not a part of it, but he hasn't been himself for a long time anyway. Uh, so you guys are Franklin and EJ Speed and all these fire-breathing dragons like the Forrest Buckner, Grover Stewart. This is a dangerous defense. They can make a lot of things happen. The Texans have to be careful, cannot get Stroud hit too often because he was just out two games with a concussion. Yeah, I saw D'Amico Ryans, the head coach, first-year head coach down there, has had a fantastic year as well, Mark. And he had mentioned that – there's nothing that he sees that is relatable, nothing he sees to that, that first victory by the Colts of the season in relation to this matchup coming up on Saturday evening. Is that just gamesmanship from the coach here, or is that, there's some truth behind that? I think there is some truth because who were the Colts then, right? You knew Minshew could do some things, or you felt like he could. Did you expect this out of Minshew from top to bottom this entire campaign? Look, it's not like he's lit it up like Joe Montana, but he's carried the team to a winning season, if nothing else. And I think that says a lot about him and the coaching staff of the Colts. And I think with D'Amico, you know, he had the Jags kind of far apart on the schedule, the Titans two weeks apart on the schedule. Uh, so this feels like a long time ago. I mean, there's a lot of water under the bridge this season for both teams, and I know they've both gone through a lot of players, but especially the Texans. Mark Vandermeer, the voice of the Texans on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I know everybody down there was excited uh, about Ryan's getting the job. Has it been everything that you thought it was going to be, and certainly a great deal that you feel that they can build off of for the long-term future there? 
Well, this thing, with everything the organization has been through since 2020 and 0-4 and Bill O'Brien gets fired and you end up going 4-12 and and all the rest of it, this organization's kind of been in the abyss football-wise, right? And maybe not kind of. They were. For D'Amico Ryans to get the job, for them to go out, seek him, they come to an agreement, the day he was hired, it was like – all the wrongs had been righted. Everything felt better instantly. All the former players came back. It was a huge homecoming. It felt great. And then you have draft night, which was amazing because a lot of people thought, wait, are they not going to take a quarterback? And they took Stroud. Then they trade up to take Will Anderson, who's been great as well. And it just felt so right. And then to have a winning campaign on top of that, yeah, things feel phenomenal here. The fan base is loving it. Things are headed in a great direction, and I don't know what happened Saturday night. I think even with a loss, you feel very good about where the season ended up based on where you where the expectations were for most people, but it'll be better because it's the Colts, and you know the history between these two teams. It's, uh, it's really rough for the Texans. Hey, Mark, from the outside looking in on that, to me it just seems like that the stability is there. And with a lot of things you just described in recent history in Houston, that is maybe at the forefront of what the fan base finally gets to have. It is stability in the now and for the longer-term future. Yeah, they had a lot of draft capital in the Watson deal, and that Watson situation was a really rough one to live through. I mean, I don't want to rehash everything, but, you know, he's on the roster for an entire season and not playing, and you knew you were going to trade him, and when? You had all those, uh, not charges, but allegations to deal with and everything like that, but they got on the draft capital. They made some pretty good moves here. Nick Kassir has done a dynamite job, and it's not just the high draft choices. It's the subtleties. It's acquiring Devin Singletary and Dalton Schultz and players like that, Sheldon Rankins, who's been good, and Jimmy Ward and the rest of them. So uh, it just feels stable. It feels like there's a good base here, even though you have some free agents to re-sign or make decisions on. But, you know, when you have Stroud, when you have the quarterback, you guys know this, when you have the quarterback, it feels a whole lot better moving forward. You know, you you made a great point in closing here, is quietly went about signing some name-recognizable guys at positions that really do matter and I think like a lot of the NFL didn't notice it, but it, it certainly in, in week in that week number three matchup was noticed here in, in something I guess by design that was done in Houston that certainly has worked out. Name recognizable guys didn't break the bank, but set themselves up for a season like this, and and certainly for the longer term future. Yeah, and when you do that, John, when you draft guys at position groups and sprinkle in established veterans who, yeah, they're not going to yeah. bust the marquee and lead Sports Center or anything like that, but they're going to contribute. Shaq Mason on the offensive line, you have Sheldon Rankins on the D line, players like that, along with the draft picks and young players, then you have something, and it's all working out very well so far. Now, they'll, again, have some decisions to make in the offseason, but we'll see where it goes from there. It's a Mark Vandermeer, Vice President Broadcasting and Voice of the Houston Texans. That's what it says on his card right there on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Well-versed in music, by the way, too. Are you big Eagles guy? Is that why you brought that up? I'm more of a Zeppelin guy gotcha. and Steely Dan, but I love it. You know, I love it all. I'm, I'm a classic rock guy and 70s soul. Have you seen um, Steely Dan without Walter Becker? Yeah, I have. I saw. Yeah. Well, I saw Fagan. I think he was touring as himself, but they played yeah. a ton of Steely Dan. I believe that's what I saw yeah. like a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, I felt fortunate. I, I caught them right before 
Walter Becker passed away. So it was a mm-hmm. good show here. Smaller venue, very nice environment and fun. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're glad that you, you got to see it before. It just wasn't the same again. You know what I mean? To use the sports analogy, those guys are like, when they play a game, they just sign free agents. It's all session musicians, and they just run through them. They just use them for whatever they need. The solo and peg, I don't know if you saw that documentary. Yeah. They used seven different guys before they settled on the iconic guitar solo. I love this kind of stuff. Well, listen, Steve Lukather can't be in everybody's band, all right? So yeah. you're, you're Richard Page can't be in everybody's band. These guys have made – these guys are like uh, rock star Hall of Fame level session musicians, those two guys right mm-hmm. there. It's kind of amazing how that's gone. Hey, Mark, safe travels up here to Indy and have a great call on Saturday night. Thanks very much for having me on. Anytime. Mark Vandermeer, the voice of the Texans on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline from the Indianapolis Star, he covers the Colts. Nate Atkins is with us. What do you make? I'm sure you probably looked at both injury reports. Of course, you cover the Colts, but maybe a little bit of look-see on that Texans injury card, at least on this Wednesday leading up to the Saturday night affair. Saturday night affair. What do you make of it on both sides where we sit right now on this Wednesday before the game? Well, as of right now, I think you'd have to feel better about kind of where the Colts are compared to where the Texans are at. So the only kind of negative uh, development for the Colts compared to where they were to start the week is Ryan Kelly is in a walking boot and mispracticed today. And, yeah, that's a tricky situation. He's he's fought through a lot, played through a lot. I imagine he'll give it some kind of go. But they got Kenny Moore back from the back injury. Uh, they had a scare with Quentin Nelson's ankle, but he's out there uh, practicing again. Uh, and Braden Smith is, uh, you know, still working back from the knee, but, but showed a lot on Sunday to work through that and play. So they're mostly as healthy as they could be at this point, you know, given the other players that they've lost. Uh, meanwhile, the Texans are just going through it at a couple positions, wide receiver and pass rusher that are really important to this game. Almost all their pass rushers are not practicing at the moment. Probably a situation like Ryan Kelly, where I'm sure they're, you know, it's a winner-take-all game, and it sounds from from, what, from guys over there, it sounds like they're going to give it a go too. But you mix that with, you know, missing some uh, wide receivers, Noah Brown and, and Robert Woods, after they already lost Tink Dell, and these things do tend to add up. So I think the Colts have to feel a little bit better. The one, the one thing I keep in mind though that that does help the Texans out is. They got Larry Metunzel back at practice, their star left tackle. He did not play week two against the Colts. It was a big reason. They were able to get a strip sack to take the lead in that game and go up by so much. So things do kind of, kind of ebb and flow with this stuff. But for the most part, I think the Colts are the healthier team right now. Uh, and you're right, too, Nate. You look back at that week three, I believe it was, meeting, and their, their offensive line in Houston was decimated with injury. Yeah, it, it's you know, and Anthony Richardson played that game too and got them the lead with two great rushing touchdowns. And that sort of was also the beginning of C.J. Stroud's breakout that sort of happened in the second half of that game. And he finished with 384 yards, uh, you know, but it, it, too little too late. But, you know, he went on to win eight of his next 12 starts. So, you know, that game was – it just feels like two 
different teams looking back at it. The Anthony Richardson Colts and kind of the very early stages of the C.J. Stroud, Jamico, Ryan Texans. So I think we're going to get a little bit uh, different teams on, on Saturday night. So where do we make the relation to that that first win by the Colts you know, of the two uh, this season, of course, Houston and the Colts on Saturday night? So where D'Amico Ryans had mentioned there is no really relatable to that first meeting in September to what we're going to see coming up on Saturday night here. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Texans would love to believe that because they didn't play super well in that game. And they have reason to believe that because they've changed at a few levels. Another one is, you know, back then they were riding with Damian Pierce as their running back. And they found out about midseason that Devin Singletary is much, much better. And they've changed their run game ever since they went to him. So I understand why they say that. At the same time, Tick Dell was very big in that game. You know, he didn't play. He's, he's out for the year now. Uh, and, you know, the Colts did not have Jonathan Taylor back then. So, uh, you know, it is a different situation entirely. It's, uh, you know, it makes a little bit more of a wild card situation this week than you'd normally have between teams that played in the same division. So Nate Atkins of the Star covers the Colts. He's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Is it as, as simple as the philosophy we have seen so far that has led to Colts wins? Is it uh, protect the football, be able to run it, have your offensive line play the best they can to be better than the opposition, opposition's defensive front, and then to put pressure on the quarterback? Because it seems like those three things, if the Colts do it right to a higher level, they win – if there is a flaw in that system, then that's when you end up getting games like Atlanta on Christmas Eve. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting looking back at this cold season because for a long time I've, I've had a hard time figuring out week to week if they were going to win or not. And it does feel like it comes down to game scripts so much with them where if they can run the ball and if they can support Gardner Minshew with, run, with the run game and the – pass rush and the quarterback they're facing isn't too much, then uh, then they can kind of come away with wins. Where they've fallen apart, uh, those two games on the road against the Bengals and Falcons have come when, uh, you know, those they were able to, the run game was able to disappear really quickly. Either those teams were in the bare fronts, which made it hard to run, or really what happened was they just scored so much so quickly that the Colts had to, to kind of put it on Gardner and obvious drop back pass situations and that's just not where he's going to be at his best he needs to operate in the rpo game in play action in some of the quick three-step drops in moments where you know some of the, the trick plays they've rolled out moments where it isn't just so obvious that they have to drop back and pass right now and so a lot of it does come down to their defense it's on their pass rush to uh, make quarterbacks uncomfortable and speed them up uh, but it's also on their ability to tackle in the run game. And that's what's been weird is ever since Grover Stewart came back, the run defense has been very hit or miss where yeah. there's moments like against the Raiders where they really handled it well. Uh, but there's been moments against the Bengals and the uh, the Falcons where they didn't tackle well enough. And it, really they were able to – it's kind of all about can the, the run game get to that second level where I think the Colts are going through it a little bit with injuries and influx at linebacker and safety. Uh, but it's the, the thing we haven't seen in a long, long time is them face like a high-level quarterback. Uh, the only one I'd say in the past couple months that would be in the realm of C.J. Stroud is Baker Mayfield. But Baker got an ankle injury in that first drive, you know, missed a little bit of time, came back in, and that ended up being one of his 
worst performances in an otherwise very good year. I think you have to go back early in the season to when they played a three three straight games against C.J. Lamar Jackson and Matthew Stafford, uh, and they were able to to win two of those. Uh, but you know, but you saw some leaks against Stafford and and C.J. Stroud uh, or Trevor Lawrence would be the other one. You know, and they. Uh, they lost two games against him. So it's definitely harder when they go up against a quarterback that can put the pressure on their offense to not just live through the run game but answer scores. And that's where ultimately, to me, it comes down to the Colts' defense. Can they tackle well enough in the run game to force C.J. into obvious drop-back situations, and can their pass rush win? I think that's kind of what's going to decide the game on Saturday. Jonathan Taylor is 5-0 and in the past against the Texans. Now, obviously, did not play in the initial matchup in that win, and it was Zach Moss who shouldered that particular load in that win back in, in September. Is there any relatables with the past in that 5-0 and and nearly 125 yards a game from Taylor against the Texans? Can you compare that at all with this Texans defense he'll match up against? And is he able, is he capable of shouldering that load if need be Saturday night? I think the one relatable piece is just that Jonathan Taylor is a really good player. And we saw that again on Saturday against the Raiders. He's been he had 96 yards. He's been itching for that first 100-yard game. And against the Texans, that used to be every single time he'd play, which is both about him and about them. You know, they would – the Colts would often get a lead and they just kind of milk it with Jonathan Taylor. And so it's a different type of Texans team. And they've really, really gotten better in the run defense. The last second half of the season, they've been absolutely dominant. And that's just sort of that D'Amico Ryan's effect of building a defense uh, throughout the season. So it's going to be harder for sure for the Colts uh, in Jonathan Taylor. It helps to have Zach Moss. Uh, it sounds like he's going to play at four-arm injury. Even Trey Sermon has looked pretty good over the past few weeks. Uh, but no doubt they have to find a way to, to run the ball better uh, than, than some of these games. And that's where Braden Smith coming back uh, was really good against the Raiders. So I, I definitely don't expect Taylor to just you know have this, the same ease he had in previous matchups with the Texans. But for them to win, he's going to have to have a good game. And they're going to have to run the ball. If we come out of this and say that the, the, Col- the Texans shut down the Colts' run game, I think we're also going to say that the Texans won the game. So that is a huge part of it. And I think for the Colts, they feel okay about that, considering you know we'll see with Ryan Kelly and his health. But getting Braden Smith back was a huge, huge lift. And now they're going to have three different running backs that they trust to carry the ball. And that's going to be pretty helpful, especially when you add in the fact that Jonathan Taylor, not much mileage this year uh, just due to the – the thumb injury and the you know, the contract situation. So if there is a game to really ride him, uh, if he's hot, it's going to be this week. Nate Atkins of the Star covers the Colts. He's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I kind of look at this, this team defensively a couple of different ways, and I know you get all of these questions. Where do you stand with Gus Bradley? Um, is this a game in which, if he doesn't win, is it going to be hit or miss whether or not he, he is brought back? Is he already in that standing? Or do you look at it more with Gus Bradley in this defense as he's doing the most with what he has, especially at the back end of that defense right now? How do you assess where they are with their defensive coordinator moving into this winner-take-all, go-to-the-postseason matchup? Well, all season, Shane's been very supportive of Gus Bradley. They have a history before here, so it is an arranged marriage. But they also you know, work together in San Diego, and 
you know, and so he had a feel for him, and they they really like Gus Bradley as a teacher and as a leader, and a, you know, a, a lot of these different levels. Uh, I do. There could be a conversation eventually. I think the conversation with him is more about philosophically what kind of defense do you want to run because he likes to run a single high defense in a league that's moving more too high to take away uh, the natural explosive pass games. Uh, so that that could that's more the conversation. But as far as kind of performance level within what he's trying to run, I do think he's getting the most out of what he has for the most part. You know, to live basically all season with two rookie outside cornerbacks in this league, I mean, that's asking for a rebuild. And I think that's exactly what the Colts asked for in the beginning is they thought this was going to be a rebuild. And so to hold he's in some way he's being held to the fact that you know the, the Colts offense has overachieved so much. I saw today where they're 10th in the league in scoring and that's with a backup quarterback and you know all the other issues they've had. So relative to that, uh, you know, I guess the performance hasn't been as good, but for the most part he has managed having these rookie quarterbacks and just other issues that have popped up between Shaquille Leonard, you know, did not end up being the player that they hoped because of health. Uh, you know, Grover Stewart getting suspended, that hurt. Uh, you know, the one thing I've pinned on him that I think is fair that finally he's rectified is Nick Cross's playing time. I think they should have made him the free safety much earlier in the season, and they would have been in less of a compromised position to give up those explosive plays, uh, which they ended up kind of overdoing it, playing more too high late in the season rather than playing the best version of them. So right now I think he has them – with what their personnel is at the best version of what they can be, uh, I think if they fall short this week or if they make it and they fall short next week, eventually it's going to come at the hands of a high-level passing game. And that's just kind of life with two rookie outside cornerbacks. So uh, Gus hasn't been perfect, but I think if there's a downfall to this defense, it's the one that they entered the season with, which is not investing in one of the most premium positions on the team. And, and Nate, certainly he, he takes the criticism for a lot of what you just talked about, and that's just, again, coming with the territory, but how much props does he receive for the type of, of sack season up front that this team is having defensively this year? Yeah, he uh, he gets some for that because, you know, he's building a, a pass rush without that dominant edge rusher. And so you see a lot of these that are teams that are really good at this around the league, like, you know, the Browns and the Cowboys and the Steelers and the 49ers, they all have that guy who's pushing for, you know, the league lead in sacks, who is a, a high, high investment first-round pick type max contract edge rusher. And the Colts have a somewhat of a version of that in DeForest Buckner on the interior. But rarely do you see, outside of an Aaron Donald, that that key's one of the best pass rushes as an overall team. And it's working this year because they've mixed and matched a lot of different guys where they've seen the strides out of uh, Dio Dengbo and Quiddy Pay as they're growing up. They, they took a chance on and the front office deserves a lot of credit for this too, in going out and getting Samson Ebicom, who came from one of those situations with a high-level pass rusher, Nick Bosa, but he stepped in and taken his game to another level uh, you know, getting something – the roles they built inside and out for Taekwon Lewis and Dio Dengbo have helped them mix it up on teams quite a bit. And then, you know, they have had a very lucky bill of health at that spot where guys who've been hurt in the past, Woody Pay, Dio Dengbo, Taekwon Lewis, have all stayed healthy this season. And so that's sort of transformed it. So 
you know, last year their pass rush was pretty good until it fell off late with the injuries to Quiddy Pay and uh, Taekwon Lewis, and they felt maybe one more guy away. This year they went out and they got that guy. They've stayed healthy, and they're fifth in the league in sacks, and they have the most sacks that Indianapolis has ever had out of an NFL team. And so I think you got to give them credit for building this out one year to the next and a lot of people, a lot of different people get credit for the players, the, the front office, but uh, you, you, I don't think you can separate Gus from that either. Nate, I don't know if you heard this on the way in. I kind of explained this game on Saturday night in this fashion, and I know that it is a surprise the position the Colts are in right now with that possibility to go to the postseason, with that possibility to win the division. Still, uh, that is a huge surprise. To most, and I know a lot of people look at this as a playing with house money game on Saturday. However, I don't. I look at it as you played yourself into this situation. Take advantage of it. I have expectations, and I have expectations that will be incredibly disappointed if they lose this game. Is this a house money matchup to you, or is this one that comes rotten with expectations where they should be able to take care of this team? at home given this Saturday night situation? Uh, well, I, I look at it as house money just given the fact that they went into the season trying to rebuild. Uh, like I mentioned, an outside cornerback and waiting to get the Jonathan Taylor contract done. And then they lost Anthony Richardson and went to a backup quarterback. So I do think they have to be grateful they're in the spot. I understand why those who, you know, fans of the Colts you know, do expect more. You, you want your team to – uh, to take a shot. The players are in that spot too now. They they are surprised. I think some of them are surprised they've gotten here. But now that they're here, like Reggie Wayne said, like don't don't just uh, twist the knob in the door. Let's kick it open. Like I understand that idea that like this team used to be a perennial playoff team, and then you know then they so much heartbreak has happened between you know, losing Andrew Luck and the collapse in 2021 and how disappointing last season was. So I understand when you have this opportunity, win and get in, like they did in 2021, didn't take advantage of, that you want to be able to do it. And it does matter for all these other things, too, where to get this team a playoff game after all they suffered through last year and, and fell short of, to get these young players, young corners and the, the young players starting on this team, playoff experience, and to get Shane Sykin that sort of runway to, to keep building out this culture and the schemes on both sides of the ball, to take it an extra where you can drop Anthony Richardson in, you know, that is important. And so I I understand it being it's not nothing if they lose, and it's, it's some, it is something if they win. To me, it's going to kind of, as far as how I'm going to kind of word it or, or, you know, sum it up, to me it comes down to how they lose or why they lose. If it's ultimately because they didn't have the quarterback, the Texans have their top five pick available and the Colts just fell short in that area, that's where I think you can feel like this was a house money year and you're excited for, for getting back Anthony Richardson next year. You know, if it's, other, if it's other things that feel more in the control of the places they've tried to build this team, like the pass rush or their offensive line or their run game, uh, if those areas fall short, then I'd, I'd – Definitely think there's room to be disappointed. This is basically a playoff game, and no matter how you get there, you know you expect to, to compete and you want to try and win. And the players are in that spot, and so I think it's reasonable for people watching the team to be in that spot too. I, I hesitate to ask this, but I will anyway. While I have you here, and you obviously bring up Gardner Minshew, the backup quarterback, and and this season. 
Um, what will likely be his offseason value, and will that value outweigh? I'm assuming, and this is just me, there's no way in the world unless you have to break the bank that if I'm the Colts, I would let him go someplace else. I would want him to be here again for next year just in case you have to break the glass on him. But where is his value, you think, going to be after the season as a backup that he has had considering where the Colts are at the end of this season? It's all going to come down to if he can find a place where he has a chance to go in and compete to start, which he will not have this year. Thought he would have it heading into this year just based on the timing. And at that time, they actually didn't know which quarterback they were going to draft. Uh, but last year, he did not have that market. That's why he signed a deal for you know between 3 and $4 million. That's backup money, and that was coming off a year with the Eagles where he started a couple games filling in for Jalen Hurts but was very, very clearly the backup. So the league had kind of shifted to understanding him as a backup. And, uh, you know, I, have a, I would assume that that's right now where most of the league is because most of the league's going to try to you – know, you, you try to set higher – you try to swing for the fences a little bit where you either have that guy or you're just building it with a rookie uh, with a draft pick. But you never know. I mean, there's there's teams that are kind of get caught in between. There's you know, and there's backups that end up finding uh, life later on, or guys that just you, you know the league thought one thing and there's something else. Like we're seeing that with Joe Flacco right now, Geno Smith's the other story like that. So uh, Gardner, you know, if it's if it comes down to a backup job for him, I'd be surprised if he leaves because of what he was able to show this year to his teammates, to his coaches. And the fact that, like, you have Anthony Richardson, you do need to invest in a backup quarterback because he's a running quarterback and the injury concerns are what they are. So I don't, you know, as far as the backup situation, I don't know that he's going to find much better than the one he's at. But I don't know that they'll break the bank for that either. They, they're ready to move this heading into next year, really move this thing in Anthony Richardson's arms where they believe they have the team and the offense and the coach and the scheme to just kind of really go for it next year, be a playoff team with Anthony Richardson, with all the things that have been positive about their offense, just sub in this quarterback who you know has has a big time arm strength and you know is an electric runner and all of that. Uh, so they'll invest in a backup that's at least serviceable. But uh, if he's if he has any kind of financial market, if he has a chance to go start somewhere, I'm, I'm pretty sure Gardner's the type of competitor that he's going to want to take that opportunity uh so it's just hard to say until we see how the draft goes to see whether there's some team that gets left out that wants to give him that chance nate atkins of the star with us quickly a final thing and it, sure it it doesn't matter i guess other than just kind of the the gossipy portion of it but um it doesn't matter unless the colts win on saturday of uh, mckenzie and brown this would be the final game of their suspension let's just see if the colts win would either one of them happen to be back anywhere near this locker room and this roster uh well they are technically by the way the colts wrote the suspension they are eligible to be back if they make the postseason uh i have not heard anything definitively but it would really really surprise me if either one is uh, so they've the day after this all went down, they they moved their locker stalls out of the out of the locker room and um, and pretty much pushed them aside. So um, it's possible we don't know all what's going on behind the scenes if there's ways that they've gone about trying to rectify some of this. But 
you know, they've also found guys in some of those positions to do the jobs that they were here for, which were sort of, you know, were, were depth jobs like backup nickel corner. That's Chris Lamont stepped in on set Sunday for that. Uh, punt returner Josh Downs has handled that pretty reasonably well. So I think that was a moment where Shane, uh, he came out and said, we have standards on this team and guys need to know that. I think that's the message they want to kind of send and, and just kind of letting that ride out is a way to do that. So I personally, I'd be surprised if we see them again. Is this, just, know. Is this just the path of this team under the the leadership of, of Shane Steichen? Why has there been zero transparency as to what actually went down? Because normally you hear something. Normally there's some sort of leak. But everything, and I mean everything, is on lockdown with this story. Why? Yeah, I mean part of it is Shane is very – uh, tight-lipped about anything that has to a lot of subjects really including scheme and injuries but certainly when it comes to things said and done kind of in private settings like he doesn't even like to get into conversations he has with individual players even when they're not you know there's nothing really to give up there uh, so that's just kind of his style I think he fears like a lot of coaches the distraction that'll come with you know headlines forming and uh, you know, and some of that will happen even when you don't reveal what it is because people theorize, and that's the state of the Internet. But that's just sort of how he's approached every kind of situation. Didn't get much into Grover Stewart. Didn't didn't talk much about the behind-the-scenes conversations with Shaquille Leonard. Uh, and then now, you know, with Drew Ogletree, didn't, you know, didn't want to get into kind of even when they kind of found out about that situation. So uh, it's just kind of his way of doing things where they just – they do not want to worry about anything other than the game that's right in front of them and to kind of spend time talking about these other situations to him would be uh, kind of antithetical to what they're trying to get done. So uh, as far as that situation with Isaiah and, and Tony, uh, you know, it's something where it may come out eventually. It's it's one of those where nobody that's involved, kind of clearly nobody that's involved wants to get it out. Isaiah and Tony, you know, are the ones who – who committed whatever infraction it was. And then uh, Shane Steichen and his entire team's like just trying not to get anything to get out there that's going to sort of rock the boat as they're trying to stay focused on a playoff push. So it's I've seen these situations before. These The truth tends to come out eventually, but it's not surprising, too surprising that uh, while they're in this playoff push, that they've they've just kind of been able to keep it in house. Nate Atkins of the Star with us covers the Colts on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Seeing the press box coming up on Saturday night. Enjoy the rest of your week, Nate. Thank you. Yes, sir. We'll see you there. Meantime, Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. There's going to be so much going on. I know an old schooler from the state of Indiana, like our next guest, thoroughly enjoys the buzz, the electricity that will be going through downtown Indy coming up on Saturday evening. From Pacers TV, it is Jeremiah Johnson with us. Man, that's going to be one hellaciously awesome Saturday, is it not? John, there's nothing better than a downtown buzz, vibrant atmosphere. I can remember back in the day when I was in high school, we wouldn't always get tickets to the Pacer playoff games or some of the events, but we would just come down and, and go uh, have a bite to eat and watch the game and just be around other fans. And yeah. so I, I invite anyone that can get tickets to either of the Pacers game or the Colts game to go, but if not, uh, just soak up the atmosphere because I think it is one of those nights you'll remember for a while and 
Packers hoping it, it goes well for both teams. And I know they're both pulling for each other. You know, unfortunately for me, I grew up during an era in which uh, nobody was good downtown and there wasn't a football <laughs> team yet. And the only place to eat was that McDonald's inside the Hyatt Regency. So, yes, it was a different time altogether. <laughs> yeah, just luckily I'm just a little bit younger than you. So, or those early playoff runs for the Pacers, there were some Saturdays I remember we had doubleheader baseball games, and uh, the second game would go extra innings, and we won that game to get over because we wanted to head down to Indianapolis. And I'm surprised at the time our parents would let us do that, but I'm glad they did, and we created some good memories in the process. He is Jeremiah Johnson, Pacers TV tonight with a big one. And see if you follow me on this. I thought that that win on Monday night, New Year's Day in Milwaukee, was the best performance of the season, even if it did not encompass the best performances out of many of the starters. I just thought as a team and what you recognize and what you want to see, that was the most impressive slash best performance of the season for the Pacers. Would you agree? Uh, It definitely is up there. I was having this conversation with Pat Boylan on our podcast yesterday, and it's going to be tough for me to put anything above that Boston Celtics game just because of the stakes, the the intensity of the building and really what it meant to both teams. Um, So that's probably number one, but I'll put, and I'll agree with you for a number of reasons. I'll put that one number two because it's one in different ways. Are you still there? Did you cut out? The lights out from outside the arc or Tyrese Halliburton and Miles Turner had amazing scoring nights. It was it was despite poor three-point shooting and in the plus-minus category, which some people um, you know, make a big deal of. Others say it's not that big a deal. I know Rick Carlisle brings it up on his post-game press conferences almost every game, so it means a lot to him. All the starters were minuses and all of the bench players were pluses, and that's not how you think you would have to play to beat a team like Milwaukee, who had won 12 straight games in their building, and they had the opposite bounce from the in-season tournament. The Pacers had a little bit of a regression. The Bucks came out determined and on fire in the game since the in-season tournament, and the Pacers still beat them. And so that bodes well, not just for tonight, but if these two teams should meet again in the playoffs, uh, going into this season, I never wanted to see a Pacers-Bucks game. They've been some of the most painful ones to watch, and now this season through four games, they've been among the most entertaining ones. And all of a sudden now – Is the product of what we have seen numbers-wise with the upping on the defensive end, is that what the Pacers are doing, or is that a combination of the teams that they are playing? How have you equated that? Because certainly the defense over the past handful of games has been much better, and really to a level in which you would want it to be, considering what you expect to get out of their offense on a night-in-night-out basis. Yeah, I think we're going to continue to reference a practice on December 20th after they were run out of the gym, their own gym, by the Clippers on that Monday before Christmas as being a turning point. And I wasn't there for that entire practice, so I can't tell you everything that was said. But I think the coaches got the players' attention finally about, hey, you cannot just outscore teams. And when you have a lot of success, even though you're playing poor defense, it's tough for the message to to sink in. But then when you have the struggles that they had after the in-season tournament and you're starting to look at a record that's about 500 and instead of being fourth or fifth in the Eastern Conference, you're dipping down to eighth or ninth, it gets everyone's attention. And it wasn't immediately they made the lineup change, but then a week later to make significant changes to the starting lineup, I think everyone understood this wasn't about anything other than being a better defensive team. 
And after, you know, 25 games, Rick Carlisle made the decision that you cannot just rely on outscoring teams. You can't just think you're going to go into a game and beat a good defensive team, you know, 150 to 140. You have to be able to get some stops in crunch time in crucial situations. And while it's not going to be – it wasn't like they just flipped the switch. We saw some schematic changes. We've seen some individual game plans change a little bit. Just look at what they did against Giannis and the approach they took to guarding him compared to the night he had 64 points. I mean, uh, Caitlin Cooper on, on Twitter or on X, she had a nice graphic where it was the Pacers guarding Giannis in 2023 and then guarding him in 2024, and you saw this wall of players just outside the free-throw line daring him to try to break through that wall, and he let the ball go. He found his teammates, and you'd rather have Malik Beasley or even Brooke Lopez shoot than you would Giannis driving to the basket. So it's been a combination of factors, but I definitely think everyone just understood First in offense, 30th in defense. It can be fun to watch, but it's not going to lead to any success in April or May, and they ultimately want to do that. Do you think the success we have seen recently has anything to do with the change in the starting lineup of Rick Carlisle? I think it wasn't just the personnel change, but just back to what I said about getting some guys' attention. You can say, hey, you've got to get better or your playing time is going to get taken away. But once you make that change to the starting lineup, It does some things to just remind guys to pound home. If I don't play defense, I'm going to be down to 15 minutes a game. And if I only play 15 minutes a game, uh, my scoring average is down. It affects a lot of different things. But the one thing that Rick Carlisle has mentioned, and we talked for how many years about a big lineup and whether that could work, and then you thought, okay, when the trade happens, it's a bonus, moves on, you're not going to see that as much. It is important when you're struggling rebounding and you're struggling in the paint to maybe go to the big lineup. And so while every game is not going to work out for Jalen Smith to be uh, a really good four or maybe to play two bigs over a large portion of the game, to have that as an option that you go to, which we didn't see a lot of the first 25 games, I think it can really help your defense inside and, and your rebounding. The Pacers have made major strides over the last couple of weeks in rebounding where they were really giving up just too many second chance points before they went big. It's uh, Jeremiah Johnson, Pacers TV, Bucks Pacers round two, coming up later on tonight. Round two of the week, I should say. He's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Yeah, round five, round two of the week. Benedict Matherin, interesting to me. And this is how it goes, right? This is basketball 101 for everybody out there. And you and I certainly know this. When you play better, and you're successful on the offensive end, normally that leads to you being more engaged and better on the defensive end. I thought we saw that to a degree the other night in Milwaukee. We did, and Rick Carlisle brought this up too, that young players are so trained to look at a box score or to just think if I have a certain amount of points, it means I played a good game. And we think when the first shot goes in, it's going to lead to a good offensive game. But I think you're right. It it also – leads to an all-around game and I was looking up some information and some stats this afternoon I didn't remember Benedict Matherin subbing out he checked in the game with I think 941 on the clock in the third quarter and he's a guy that doesn't like coming out of the game it doesn't matter when but if he did come out at any point in the second half I don't think he did but if he did it was maybe the last like 30 seconds of the third quarter, but I think he might have stayed in the entire third quarter, and he definitely played all 12 minutes in the fourth quarter. And that was another thing that made the the win 
so beneficial because I saw a lot of communications and huddles, a lot of um, reacting to plays between Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Mather. And, and that was one of the things you wanted to see this season. You wanted to see those two guys play off each other. Could they be that backcourt uh, that you build around? And year two has been a little tough for Benedict Mather. But the rebounding, he noticed he didn't have any rebounds the previous game. He brought that up with me, and he had a career high in rebounds. Now I'll look up, and I didn't bring this up to him, but I, I think some players maybe uh, good-naturedly did. Uh, the assist number wasn't so good the other night. So we're, we're looking for some Benedict Mather and assist tonight because he's continuing to work on his all-around game. But I, I do think it's been a really good week for Mather, and he hasn't hung his head when coming off the bench. And he knows if he plays well, even if he comes off the bench, he, I, I think he led the team in, in minutes played, uh, you're going to get plenty of playing time. Hey, JJ, it looks like – They've moved well past that whole game ball situation uh, against Milwaukee a couple of weeks ago. I'm curious, at the end of the game on Monday night, it kind of looked <laughs> like that uh, – was it was it Miles and then somebody else uh, was coming over to Halliburton about the game ball and Halliburton kind of waved him off. And it, it almost felt like that they were just kind of dropping it all together with that. Did I Did I see that accurately or was it something else entirely? I was a little curious as to what was happening. Sometimes players will not want the ball in their hands when a clock expires, like a shot clock expires. Because it gives you a turnover? Uh, for the turnover, but I don't even yeah. think that's actually an individual turnover anymore. I think it's one of those Team. myths that they just continue to play along with. But I do think there might have been something to what you're saying, and I can't say with 100% certainty that maybe one of the three players wanted to take the ball or do something with it. And I, I, just reading lifts, it looked like maybe Tyrese was like, no, let's just no, let's just put it into this. And then I think he went and handed that ball to the referee. So I'm not going to deny that there was maybe a thought to do something as if to say, here's your game ball. However, they also knew there's another game against the Bucks coming up yeah. on Wednesday. And just do your job, keep your head down. And if you've already clinched the season series now, so that should say enough. But if you could take four or five, I'm not sure what else would need to be said. You know, the other thing about Halliburton that jumps out, and certainly his play has been incredible, but you can see his leadership qualities and value evolving as well with his play. And you can see that right before your eyes, can you not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I see it on the plane. I see it on the bus, in the hotels, shoot-arounds, the, the personality that brings everyone up. But um, for a point guard – he also starts games, and he knows, like much like you said about if shots go in, it helps you defensively. He knows that guys need to get looks in that first quarter. So you rarely see a high-scoring first quarter for Tyrese Halliburton because as a leader, it seems like he's cognizantly thinking about, all right, let me get Jalen a shot. Let me get Miles Turner an open look outside the arc. When Benedict Matherin comes in the game, let's find a way to get him some shots. To me, that's leadership as well. So – uh, he's embraced every part of this role that he has, the the quote-unquote face of the franchise. It's it's going to be with him, and he does not mind it. And I don't know if there's anyone you would rather have with that title or with that role. And, and moving forward, um, you're just going to have to think of different ways to describe and ask questions about what he has done because he continues to amaze, and he continues to make us have to look up. When was the last time this happened? <laughs> you had the stretch of two straight games with – with the number of assists and no turnovers. Then you had the two 2020 games. I'm just waiting to see 
what will happen next. He almost had a triple-double. That was almost uh, an afterthought against the Bucks. He was one rebound shy of a triple-double. So uh, he's continuing to impress. You mentioned that at the beginning of games, and I've noticed this, and, and this may be a, a team theory or a team philosophy, but I, I give this also to Halliburton because it's either a high ball screen and roll or a pick and slip. It looks like that they understand you get miles, a couple of easy ones earlier, the better type of offensive game throughout he is going to have. I, I think that that's a point. Either that's their offensive philosophy early or that's a Halliburton philosophy. But you can see that, I think, night in and night out. Yeah, and what it does, if Miles hits one or two of those shots and it causes whatever center or person is guarding him to then get out there and extend out and not to switch on to Tyrese Halliburton, then it's going to um, it's going to affect the rest of the game positively. You were, uh, you were, I think, on the ground floor of this with Miles Turner, but you were saying this before he was – paired up with Tyrese Halliburton, but does it not seem like Miles Turner is the is kind of the perfect offensive player to pair up with Halliburton? Now, a lot of players can succeed with Tyrese Halliburton, but because he's been finishing some inside, but also has that shooting threat, and we didn't think of Miles Turner really as a pick-and-roll type of guy, but he's been able to do that with Tyrese Halliburton. So it's been uh, it's been something that we do see early in games. I think you're, you're on to something there with getting him those open looks, but Miles never hesitates. That's the best thing about his three-point shooting right now. If, if he has that space early in game, uh, high-arcing three-point shot, sometimes I'm just marking down three is good. <laughs> yeah. High-arcing it is. I, I, here's what I have, have seen, and maybe this is just a part of his maturation, uh, and it probably should be, but I just think with Halliburton out there with him, he just goes at it stronger and more physical than he ever has. And, and in particular on the offensive end, I just, I do. He takes, he goes to banging a lot more than he used to. There are a lot of things he does and he's never been and never going to be a great post up threat, but he is made better by the presence of Halliburton. And I just think he's a guy that plays off of extreme levels of confidence. And certainly, like anybody else, plays better when that confidence is there. And they try to establish that as early as possible with him. And I think that that's paid off for him and this team. Well, remember for so many years, he was the four on offense and the five on defense. And the four on offense was sometimes in the corner, sometimes staying outside the arc. And now he knows the, the lane is open for him. So if he catches it and he wants to drive, he can do that. If he wants to roll, there's no one going to be in his way for him to attempt to finish. And he also knows that Tyree Halliburton probably better, and this isn't to say anything about any of the other point guards that Miles Turner played with, but Tyree Halliburton is elite at getting his teammates involved and getting them the basketball. So Sometimes if you work so hard, you keep running in through a wall and you you get tired of getting knocked down and then you have to get back up. And maybe poor analogy here, but if you work so hard and you never get a chance to score, sometimes you just lose some of that aggressiveness. So maybe it's been um, a reinvigorated Miles Turner because he knows when he works hard, when he's going to get that opportunity, Tyrese will find him. And, and I'll even go a step further in saying I love how these three point guards fit well together. Their games are all just a little bit different, but they're all excellent passers. And I'll say they're actually all pass-first point guards. Now, they, they can all – you know, T.J. McConnell, we know he's not an outside shooter, but he gets to the paint and shoots that 9-footer or 10-footer about as well as anyone. And, and Andrew Nemhard has the float game down. But 
whoever's on the court that is the quote-unquote point guard, they're going to find their teammates and they're going to get them involved. And I think it really helps helps to have a, a balanced team to have a point guard that has that mentality. Yeah, the old Nate Bjorkgren offense of standing in the corner and stuff like that uh, was uh, not uh... – not fantastic. You can certainly see his game and others evolving um, as we speak here. Jeremiah Johnson, Pacers TV. Later on tonight, the Bucks and the Pacers. I did want to bring up TJ McConnell because I also talk about him and how important he is to this team personnel-wise. And once again, he showed everybody just exactly what we always talk about on New Year's Day in Milwaukee. He did. So I don't know how teams – take him for granted or maybe relax when he's on the court, but they do sometimes. And when they do, they pay for it. And uh, if teams really back off, maybe it's problematic because he's not been shooting the three-pointer as much as he did last season. But if he can just find a little space, and he's been going baseline a lot more, but if he can just get in that, you know, 10-foot area, it's a sweet spot because he he's so good at that shot. And if he gets defended or help comes, he's going to find his teammates as well. But the, the, the other thing he just brings is this energy that I, I like to tell everybody, the, they're all playing hard. There's this misnomer about the, the fourth quarter, yeah. guys wait to the fourth quarter. I mean, they're playing hard the whole game. But it, the difference is maybe if, if in the first quarter, the second quarter, you're seeing 98% entire, and T.J. McConnell's it's the 100% the entire time. And that, that 1% or 2% is a big deal, and it's a difference. And it just kind of frustrates the other team. And there are games that may not be T.J. McConnell games, but Milwaukee games we're seeing all season long and even going back to last season. Remember his, what was it, 22-point quarter against the Bucks last season? He seems to fit well against this matchup. And when, without knowing Andrew Nemhart's status for tonight, it would seem to be a T.J. McConnell night tonight uh he's never gotten down about nights that he did not play when he's not been playing i almost look at him on the bench like he's an extra assistant coach he's that vocal he's that active he's that enthusiastic and i agree with you uh there's a lot of teams that would like tj mcconnell maybe as their backup point guard but i don't think anybody would would like him more than the pacers yeah that's like him that that fourth quarter play that fourth quarter play was just dynamic and and you know something that may not show up in the box score that was dynamic and something where you can lead by example with a lot of those young guys on there that's exactly what you want and that's why another reason why he's so essential you mentioned Nimhart tonight injury situations on both sides I haven't seen here recently I saw yesterday where Middleton was a question mark for tonight have you heard anything about those participating maybe those aren't this evening got at Gambridge Fieldhouse I've not heard on Middleton, but one of the reasons he was listed as questionable was the uh, the injury rehab or the rest designation. And the Bucks play tomorrow night on TNT, and I think he fits in under the criteria where he's not allowed to rest on a TNT game, and he's not played in both halves of a back-to-back all season. So I'm just putting two and two together. Yeah. I would be surprised if Chris Middleton plays, which that's a big help to the Pacers. And this one I just saw pop up on the injury report this afternoon that I didn't see earlier was Pat Connaughton, which I think is real important because the way the Pacers want to play Giannis, there are going to be some open shots for some of his teammates. He was added to the injury report with non-COVID illness. And sometimes you don't get a name added if there's not something to it. So if Middleton and Connaughton are both out, you know, Jay Crowder has been out for a while, but those two, 
uh, guys that played on, on Monday that could not play tonight, that could be a big benefit to the Pacers. And we don't know about Nemhard, but we do know that Bruce Brown was getting close. And if Nemhard doesn't play, there stands to be a chance that that Bruce Brown could come back and alleviate uh, issues in the backcourt. Yeah, that Bucks bench the other night was non-existent, even with Connaughton and him being out there, his availability. That's something that that, that they're going to have to, I'm assuming. I know that Jay Crowder's not playing, and that's a big deal, but that would be something I would I would think you'd have to address, although their starters did did get it done. Man, we've, we've seen a couple of different times, and I, I hesitate to say this, Jeremiah, because I'm sure he'll go off upon me saying this, but have we not seen Lillard run out of gas a couple of different times in these games for the Pacers this season? Yeah, I'm, I'm like you. I hate to say Me too. Well, I'm knocking on wood, so I'm going to try to take <laughs> take this away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he's had a couple of good games and a couple yeah. of really poor games, and maybe that happens at, at some point with the new system. And also, he's not getting any younger. But the scoring averages and the percentages, if you look at the season, they're very similar to what he's had over his career, maybe down just slightly. And some of that you'd attribute to a little bit of a pack seat at times. To be honest, but he, he was a big factor in helping the Pacers win because he had such an off night, and you rarely see two such off nights. So, um, as much as you'll try to get the ball out of Giannis's hands, the key is going to be the times when both of those guys are on the court together that you don't leave Damian Lillard too open, you don't let him get in a groove, and then uh, if you can continue to dominate second unit play, uh, make Bobby Portis mad, you'll have a recipe for a win. <laughs> Well, yeah, it doesn't take too much to make him game. mad, though. He gets pissed yeah. off at anything, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen him smile, but yeah. He always looks like he wants to rip somebody's head off. I mean, whenever. He, he looks like that in the team picture. <laughs> no, he does. And I, I guess he knows his role, and yeah. a good team often needs an enforcer-type player. That's definitely the role that he plays. And he's still I – mean, I think he's still affected. He's not just uh, – a mean guy that's just there to make hard fouls. He can knock down shots. He can score inside. But still, I'd rather have him shoot outside than Damian Lillard, and I'd rather have him shoot inside than Giannis. Yeah, you mentioned in closing here Lillard, um, and it was for not because Lillard missed it, but I think it was the basically the final out-of-bounds play uh, in regulation on New Year's Day in that Bucks lost to the Pacers. And, and Quinn mentioned this on the broadcast. I, I I don't know if it was Griffin that drew up the play or whatever, but that was a hell of a play because he got Lillard. There are like a couple of different layers to it, but it got Lillard an absolute wide-open look that most of the time you would think he would sink, but in that moment he didn't. Yeah, I think – I don't remember him having a, a look or a shot prior to that point when the Pacers were making their run. So it was a little bit of a case of too little, too late, and then maybe wasn't in a rhythm uh, because that's why you have him. That's why you make the move to acquire him is to help your fourth-quarter offense when teams decide they're not going to let Giannis beat them, and then you put him on the court. I was a little worried. They they had them both check into the game a little earlier than I was hoping for, and again, I I was worried that that he would catch fire. He didn't, and – he didn't get that good look that you're speaking of, but yeah. he's already out of rhythm. Yeah, I, I thought the Pacers did a good job defensively of closing out, especially late in the game. And, man, Shaquille O'Neal brought this up 
when the Pacers were were talked about in that end season tournament is that you may not be a great defensive team, but if if you can get better and then get some fourth quarter stops, that can be enough with the firepower that you could have offensively. And I think the times we've seen the Pacers beat the better teams, that philosophy has held for them defensively. Yeah, you're accurate. You you can't give up the wide open threes. You're going to give up more when you're doubling and when you're doing a defensive strategy against Giannis like they did on Monday. And it stands to reason they may and you know put out a similar effort or tactic tonight. So there may be some open shots that go up, but you still can contest. And they've done a really good job uh, for a few years there. I was seeing just way too many. You know, I should knock on wood again. I was seeing way too many fouls on three point shooters. But have you watched how they, they sort of get the hand in the eyes, but they run right by so there's no contact? And I think they've really worked on how they defend and close out on three-point shooters just to make sure you don't foul in the act of shooting. And they've done a lot better job with that. So it's got to be scrambling. You've got to be running around. If you're going to provide help on Giannis, um, you've got to continue to move around and, and hope nobody like Damian Lillard or someone else, even Brooke Lopez from outside the arc, he, shoots that set shot but he could actually knock him down too so we'll see what happens i expect both teams to make more threes tonight than they did on monday but we'll see we'll, and if the pacers can shoot more free throws than the bucks i like i like the pacers chances as well those were there were a lot of numbers in the box score on monday that you just almost didn't believe yeah hey um are they still doing the half court shot or did that end when that dude knocked it down the other night i don't think they do that every night i'm not sure if it's a once a month thing i'll have uh. to I'll have, to, I'll have to ask Dean Havilland uh, what's the what's the process on that, but it, it definitely isn't something that they've done every night. Um, that dude, that we'll, dude, you could tell that he plays because he shot that like a regular shot. There was no heave or heft or anything like that. He shot it like a regular shot. Eddie Gill said that that guy's son went to his basketball camp, and Eddie's one of the best half court shooters there is. So maybe, maybe there is a little <laughs> bit of training going on in the summer there. <laughs> All right, buddy, we'll be watching later on tonight. Have a kick ass broadcast. All right. Thank you, John. Jeremiah Johnson. Weekend, all sports fans. Yeah, hey, we're going to have one hell of a time all together in downtown Indy. Thank you, JJ. Meantime, Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline, friend of the show, voice of the Boilermakers. Quick turnaround time for Rob Blackman last night in the state of Maryland, back home today, I'm assuming, in and around Zionsville. He's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. So uh, how much sleep did we gather last night, Rob? Oh, not bad, John. In bed by 2.15. Uh, didn't didn't roll out of bed till 10.15. Nice. So I got solid, yeah, I got the solid eight hours. Well the done. beauty of having your kids old enough to have driver's licenses, right? They can, <laughs> they can do their own things in the morning so you don't have to wake up and mess with them. So, yeah, I'm, no, I'm feeling good, man. Eight hours of sleep, feeling good. That is well played by you right there, but I, really, I expect nothing less than you well playing basically everything to that capacity. And you know what? You're professional. That's why I mentioned that. And I thought that to me was a very professional win by the Boilers last night. I mean, nothing, you know, outrageous, nothing extravagant. It was just going and getting a win, playing through a lot of things against a team that's not great, but really good at home, going there, getting the win, coming back home, prepping for the next one. Yeah, very workmanlike. Uh, that's well put. Uh, I think you use the word professional, but that's kind of what it felt like. Just kind of get in, and, uh, take care of business, and get out of town. And that's exactly what Purdue did. Wasn't yeah, you said it wasn't real flashy. I mean, uh, Purdue did shoot well from the three point line, forty five percent from three, but 
It's not like Purdue was really, you know, tearing it up from the three-point line by any means. They made, I think, nine, nine or twenty threes. I think last night didn't didn't get to a foul line a lot. They had ten free throws total, which is actually pretty rare for Purdue. Normally, Purdue's open the twenty-five to thirty free throws a game category. So, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't in in the fact that you know the crowd wasn't really into it. The students are still on break at Maryland and. Purdue jumped out of that eight nothing lead early, and it just really just zapped all whatever energy that was going to be in the crowd to begin with. I mean, it just kind of zapped them uh, all that energy. So, yeah, I mean, uh, from a broadcast standpoint, quite frankly, it wasn't a whole lot to get excited about. He just <laughs> just kind of okay, ho hum. Let's get the job done. Let's head home. So, uh, uh, Scott Van Pelt was there. I guess that was the highlight of the night. <laughs> Outside of that, man, there wasn't much to it last night. <laughs> Rob Blackman, voice to the Boilermakers. Uh, 67-53, their win over Maryland last night. Rob's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I want to ask you this, and this really doesn't have much to do with with the present Boilermakers. Uh, I, I guess it could, considering his game. Zach Eady was the normal Zach Eady, 23-12 in that win last night. And I've seen some ESPN draft analyst suggesting that Zach Eady is, is climbing up the draft board um, and is getting into the, the lottery selection territory. I don't know if that is, you know, basically a, uh, an overall ESPN draft expert thought, but uh, a couple of them do have that. And I'm going to ask you, because you've seen him more than anybody else, where is he advancing in his game that maybe folks out there thought previously he could never get? Well, his uh, his on-ball defense in the pick-and-roll situation has gotten a lot better. I mean, he has come miles in that, that one particular area. Uh, he used to be a real liability out there at that high uh, top of the key, high high uh, uh, high area of the of the free of the pardon me the three-point line uh, top of the key area in that pick-and-roll stuff. Uh, but man, he's gotten so much better at that. Just being able to stay down in a stance. And certainly not, you know, stay in front of a guy like, say, a Jameer Young. He's not going to do that. He's never going to be able to do that at seven foot four. But at least move quickly enough laterally to at least hold a Jameer Young, say, uh, for example, at bay until Purdue can get and can make the proper rotations defensively. Uh, that used to be a really, really tough spot that Purdue was put in defensively. And that's not the case anymore. He's done such a much better job of doing that these days. So, that's really the area I've seen him improve the most. I think what most people are just now seeing this year, uh, although it, I think it's always been the case, he's a very good passer and a very willing passer. It's just the problem is in the past, especially last year, Purdue wasn't making any shots. You know, Purdue shot 32% from three last year, and I have no idea what the numbers would look like if you went back and, and, and tallied them up, but I'd hate to think how many of those misses came off perfect passes inside out from Zach Eady, where he delivered the perfect pass to his teammate, and they just missed a wide-open three. That hasn't been the case this year. Purdue's been making those shots uh, at a much higher clip. So that has helped. And it, so all, you sudden, all of a sudden you see the assist numbers, and you're like, oh, well, he's become a much better passer. Well, no, quite frankly, his teammates have become better shooters. So that doesn't have anything to do with his passing ability. He's always been a good passer. Uh, now, he'll never be Travion Williams-like. That, that's the best big man passer I've ever seen in my 19 years at Purdue. But he is a very willing and able passer. So, But certainly the defense, the on-ball defense, and more importantly, the pick-and-roll defense he's gotten much better at. I don't – you know, I told you this before, John, 
I don't follow the NBA game uh, closely enough to be able to give you any type of an educated guess on if he's going to be a first-round pick or a lottery pick or where even he would fit in on a team. Uh, but I do know uh, guys like him don't come around very often. I mean, my gosh, 7'4", 300 pounds, the things he's been doing the last season and a half. And it's to the point now, and we actually, we, me and the, and the coaches, just sitting around waiting to get on the bus to head to the airport last night. One thing we're now starting to see, you know, not only is Zach a really, really popular player at Mackey Arena, now he's a popular player everywhere. Yeah, I saw that last night. The oh, pictures and the autographs, he had lines yeah, of people. The Maryland folk, yeah, yeah. The Maryland uh, fans and kids. And uh, they, they now they all want their picture and their autograph from, from Zach Eady. So I, I don't remember us ever. Uh, having a player like that, not in my tenure. Yes, at Mackey Arena, obviously you have the home fans that always stick around and want an autograph or a picture. But now you have the the opposing team's fans that are, that are hanging around and wanting to get a piece of Zach Eady. So it's really something, man, and it, it's part. It's fun to be a part of what, what little part I'm a part of it. But, man, it is – yeah, he, he's something else. I'll tell you that. Rob Blackman of the Boilermaker Radio Network, the play-by-play voice on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So fast forward to Friday, one of those Friday night – Collegiate games of the Big Ten where number nine Illinois comes to Mackey Arena. And uh, it wasn't hard to notice last night, and we know the situation with with Terrence Shannon Jr., uh, but they absolutely beat the brakes off of Northwestern last night. 96 on the board. That was 46 in the first half. They followed that up with 50 in the second half. So without their really no doubt best player, he being out suspended right now. And Illinois put up some big numbers last night against a team, obviously, that has a win over Purdue earlier this season. Yeah, now I have not seen that game. I do have it taped, but I haven't watched it back yet. Uh, so all I know is following it on my phone, uh, driving to the airport last night, uh, just keeping up on the stats. Yeah, Northwestern could not uh, – they couldn't throw it in the ocean. That's what it sounded like. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. they could not. I mean, uh, Brooks, Brooks was 3 of 12. I think uh, Bowie was 6 of 14. Uh, he's the only one that really did did anything. And uh, yeah. it was a pretty bad night. Bad, bad night all the way around for Northwestern. And they're, they're not a team that guards very well to begin with. I yeah. mean, even in the loss, Purdue scored 88 points up there. But, look, when you look at Illinois, I don't – even with Terrence Shannon – not playing. I mean, they, they don't seem to be, I didn't think they'd be lacking for offense. And obviously they're not just because of all the different guys they have that can score the ball. Um, you know, Marcus Damask had been such a great pickup for them uh, has a, uh, has a transfer, almost said free agent <laughs> has a transfer portal signing. He scored at will against Florida Atlantic in that game a month oh, ago at good. will. Yeah, no, I did see yeah. that game. I did see that yeah. game. So good. Uh, and then, yeah, so you look at, and then, you know, they have a guy coming off the bench in Luke Goody, who's a, who's a three-point shot maker. Um, and that's a guy that plays off the bench for him. Ty Rogers, I would say, is the only guy on their team that doesn't scare you offensively as far as a shot maker. But he's so good in all the other things that he does, has a facilitator and has a defender and has just a hard-nosed, you know, tough, extra effort guy. I mean, quite frankly, you know, Brad, Brad Underwood still has plenty of pieces. I mean, yes. You would love to have a guy that was probably going to be first-team All-American on your on your club. But it's not like they're void of talent just because Terrence Shannon isn't playing for them anymore. So, uh, Coleman Hawkins making, you know, he can obviously make open threes. So, yeah, that's going to be a hell of a game Friday night. That'll be, that'll be a lot of fun. And, 
you know, it's it's a deal where it's going to be a sold-out crowd at Mackey Arena, um, but the students are not back. So um, there certainly will be great enthusiasm, enthusiasm in the building, but it's always just a little bit different when it's not the students bringing the enthusiasm. So that, that that's going to be a Who sits in the paint crew? Just uh, random just people? Any, yeah, yeah, general fans. Yeah, those. So those tickets are for sale to the to the public uh, for those games when the students are gone. So yeah, that's that's who it'll be. Yes. Man, if I'm a student, I would come back early. I wouldn't want to miss if if your team were number one. Would you yeah. not come back early and make sure you were a part of that? Uh, well, one would have thought the Maryland fans, students, would have wanted to come back and watch their guys play a number one team in the country, but that didn't did not happen last. <laughs> well, night. Scott Van Pelt was there though. That's good. He was there. He was there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, look, like I said, still going to be sold out, still going to be loud, and still be a lot of, of a really fun environment. But, again, it always just feels a little bit different from when the students aren't there. Now, is that going to make a difference in the outcome of the game? I certainly don't think so. But it's going to be, man, it's going to be a good one. Think about it. Number one versus number nine uh, in, in a conference game, nonetheless. Uh, that That's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, Rob Blackman, final thing before I let you go. We're going to see consistency here down the road during the Big Ten season from let's say, Kaufman, Wren, Gillis first. Um, because I, I think certainly we, we talk about the backcourt all the time. We've talked about that ad nauseum. I know that, that Fletcher didn't have a good game last night, uh, at least offensively speaking. But it would seem like that one of those three I just mentioned previously would have to jump on board and, and give it a more night in and night out consistent look in that box score, whether it's offense or defense. Are we going to get that? You know, I wouldn't be that concerned about any of the guys you mentioned there, uh, only because they have certainly shown signs of being good enough uh, offensively. Uh, The fact of the matter is, even when they're not giving you enough, what you would think is enough on offense on a given night, they're still helping. You know, I like the plus-minus numbers last night I have in front of me. You know, Trey was a plus eight. Mason was a plus plus eight. Fletcher – who I, I'm with you. I didn't think he played a great game. He ended up being plus 20, yeah. best plus minus on the team. So those guys, I, I think. And look, I, I'm I'm guilty of it too. You look at only their their total points and the box score, and you feel like, well, maybe they didn't have a great game, didn't play well. But then you look at their overall contribution, and more importantly, the plus minus. And you're like, man, yeah, they actually really did play well. It just wasn't one of those things that shows up in the box score. So I I, I think all all three of those guys you talked about are. I, I would not be concerned about them. If I'm a Purdue fan, uh, my concern is this time of year, as it is every every year at this time of the year, uh, with the younger guys, uh, uh, Colvin and Heidi, uh, the freshmen, because they're just now really getting into the teeth of what is big-time, high-level college basketball. And I know, yes, they played some pretty big, high-level games against the Arizonas of the world, the Gonzagas of the world, the Tennessees. But now you're in conference play, which is just a totally different animal. Because now, as Matt Painter likes to say, now you have to play road games. <laughs> it's not yeah. those neutral side games; they're tough, yes. But it's it's nothing like playing on the road in the Big Ten. So those are always the guys that concern me. Uh, those freshmen getting their first crack at big time, high level basketball on the road in the Big Ten. Uh, those are the guys I always have a little concern about. Yeah, and uh, evidently your numbers were up again last night because that bad boy was on Peacock, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, 
Peacock is good for the radio broadcast team because we, uh, from what I hear, get a lot of listeners. Uh, a lot of folks like me that are old and can't figure out how to use the streaming service, so they say the hell with it and just listen to the radio broadcast. Old and proud of it is what we should say. Old and proud of it. Yes, absolutely. If you if it require, requires some type of sign-in or login or password, uh, forget about it, man. I, I'll, I'm, I'm in the dark. Uh, I just, uh, I'm at a point where I just don't want to jack with it. No, you know? I'm so, I mean, I have a desk full of passwords for different websites. Yeah. I'm like, for the love of God, can we just, anyway, I'm just, I, I, well, I'm right, I'm right there with you too. I, I get on this smart TV and I go, God, can you just turn it on uh, and I get to the channel that I'm, I mean, is it that hard? It takes like, it takes like 10 minutes to fire it up. And then you got to go through all these steps. Can you just turn on to the channel on which I want to watch? I mean, right. And I'm probably, there probably is a way I just, I'm not understanding of it. So, well, then it's you're right. Which which service do you want to watch and what's your password for that service? And (laughs) yes, it's uh, too difficult for me, but Hey, you and I are roughly the same age. We grew up when there were, Three channels on the television. That was it. I grew up when the remote control was my foot changing the knob on the TV. I was laying on the floor. Hey, can you get that on channel two? Yeah, let me get that really quick. Yeah, Big toe. Exactly. Yeah. So fourth toe right there. That's That was the remote, remote control then. I remember, I remember when the Fox Network came on board, and now we had four different channels. I thought that was, uh, that was real progress at the time. <laughs> uh, see, I remember when I used to climb the television light pole out there in my yep. yard and climb up there so I could turn it to a direction in which I could get Channel 7 out of Evansville. So, yeah, so we had uh, – I'm with deal. you. I grew up on a farm, uh, yeah. rural, and so we had the antenna, absolutely, where you had to spin it to, you know, with – point whichever direction which city you were hoping to catch their television broadcast from yeah oh i know that feeling brother that's right abc was i was because we had 38 out of Terre Haute, and sometimes that wouldn't come in rtv6 obviously but i was a little bit far out of that but uh, sometimes it was channel seven the then abc affiliate down in evansville where i had to go and watch three's company yes it always depended on the weather, right? <laughs> you uh, did, yeah. There were some nights, you know, we were close enough to Chicago. Some nights we could get Chicago television, some nights not. Some nights we could get South Bend television, some nights not. Yep. So, yeah, it, kinda, it depended on Mother Nature, too, on whether or not you're going to be able to watch any television that night or not. It did. Rob Blackman, voice of the Boilers on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Hope you had a great Christmas and celebrating that new year. And uh, we'll do it oftentimes over the course of this Big Ten campaign. Rob, appreciate you.